Ready? Born ready. Party people, party people, welcome to another episode of Where to Party At. I'm your host, Saba Long. Thank you, as always, for rocking with us. If it's your first time, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. After you finish listening all the way to the very end, make sure you click uh, subscribe, give us that five-star rating, and leave us a review Thank you all. Let's get into the show. So much is happening, almost too much. It's like a deluge of news and you're trying to wade through it and figure out what in the world is happening, but that's why you listen to this show. All right, so as always, we're going to start with some stuff that's happening locally and then branch out to national and maybe even a little international. So, uh, journalist George Cheedy, I don't know if you all have heard of this guy before, uh, he's been doing some research into shootings in Atlanta and their connection to gang violence. So, you may have heard last week a young woman named Lakivia Jackson was shot outside the Metro Fund Center on Metropolitan Parkway. Now, she got into an argument when she was inside, I think like over a bowling ball or something like that. Um, and a, the guy she was arguing with waited like 20 minutes for her to come out of the place and he shot her multiple times, ended up killing her. Uh, come to find out she is the mother of one of Young Thug's kids, the rapper Young Thug. Uh, now there's a question of if her murder is connected at all to any beef between Young Thug and YFN Lucci. Now I first, just let me say, I really feel for her family and friends uh, to lose someone unexpectedly. She was so young. It's just it's really heartbreaking. And I really hope that the murder isn't gang related because it's going to start an inevitable spark, right, of retaliation. Um, and who knows when that ends. Um, so uh, Georgia's attorney general has said that half of all violent crime in Georgia can be attributed to gangs. And the GBI, that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, in 2020, they investigated 493 gang gang cases. And in 2021, 553 gang cases. So, well, I'm curious to see what Georgia's uh, research shows to find out if the shootings that we are seeing happening so frequently Uh, in Atlanta and around the region are, in fact, gang-related. So rest in peace to Lakivia Jackson. Um, Next up, we've got, you know, crossover uh, day was last week, and that means that the bill uh, that's in the state house or state senate has to pass at least one of those chambers. So let me highlight a few bills of interest um, and... You're going to be listening to this on the 1st. If you listen to it when we release, it's Tuesday. So we'll see how these bills morph and change over time. 
So um, let me give you a quick rundown. So first up is House Bill 1464. This is a really big, interesting bill, uh, sparking a bit of controversy. So one big thing that this bill does, uh, if an individual or nonprofit wants to give a grant or any other kind of gift to a local elections office, like your county elections office, first, that gift would have to be approved by the state elections board. So the state elections board would have to accept the gift, but then ultimately they can determine how that gift is distributed, no, regardless of the intent of the donor. So for example, I can say, oh, I want to give $100,000 to the Fulton County Board of Elections. Previously, Fulton County would be able to accept that money and you know use it as they see fit unless I specified, oh, it must be used for voter education or for you know materials for voting booths or whatever, right? Now, Fulton can't accept that money. They have to first, I have to first make that request to the state elections board. So why is this happening? Why is this a big deal? In the 2020 election, which saw record turnout, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, yes, that one, <laughs> donated $350 million to a nonprofit called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. You've probably never heard of this nonprofit, but they work with governments and elected officials to improve the voting experience. So the Center for Tech and Civic Life, they distributed all of Zuck's millions to more than 2,500 jurisdictions across the country. So in Georgia, that counted for about 40 counties, um, everywhere from Augusta, Richmond, to Macon Bibb, Savannah Pooler, Metro Atlanta, so Fulton, DeKalb, I believe Clayton County also received money. And the point of this money was to help educate citizens about the election or to just help the county elections office, whether if it was they needed uh, PPE, remember 2020, we had the height of the pandemic. So you had elections offices needing to, um, uh, needing to buy masks, needing to buy hand sanitizer, dividers, all those types of things, unexpected expenses, right? So in DeKalb County, for example, uh, the money went to things like purchasing ads in the local newspapers, letting folks know about importing voting dates, uh, sending text messages to voters, reminding them of how to submit their absentee ballot. Um, it also went to things like translating voting materials in other languages. That was the first time it ever happened in DeKalb County, and that was able to happen because of the additional money. Um, you know, some folks use the grants to replace old equipment and technology, uh, things like buying the Dropbox uh, locations. If you remember in 2020, we had Dropboxes for the first time, hiring additional staff, um, all those types of things, right? So now when those grants were given out, there wasn't a stipulation that said, oh, you must use this money for a very particular reason. But the money that they used, like, buying voting stuff so that's so a nonprofit donated money for that a nonprofit donated money to the county elections offices so why doesn't the county election offices have enough money 
to begin with? Is it? So <laughs> that's, okay. that's a, yeah, well, <laughs> so tw- the 2020 election, there were just a lot more things that were unexpected, right? So you had folks transitioning from normally going to vote in person to voting by mail. So you had more absentee ballots going out, which means you needed more people to handle absentee ballots. Then you had the pandemic, which meant that people were going to end up calling out sick. So you had to have more folks on staff. You had the need for all the PPE. And if you remember, there were these ebbs and flows where it was really hard to get PPE and PPE would be really expensive. And then you might wait like four weeks later and then the price drops again. So it was for all of those kind of unexpected things. And then they wanted to really help people. And I think this is really why Republicans are going after this, because from my understanding, the nonprofit Zuckerberg gave that money to non to and, and asked the nonprofit to distribute it to kind of swing districts, swing areas, right? So think Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania. So those those cities and, and counties and states where it was going to be a contentious election. And that's I think really that's the crux of this. So and, and it wasn't explicitly said that way, but you can kind of read between the lines there. Um, and Zuckerberg wasn't the only rich person doing this. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger also did. Um, and I imagine, you know, on the flip side, I could see if, you know, name a prominent Republican billionaire, if they were doing, maybe Peter Thiel, right? So if Peter Thiel was doing this, I could see Democrats, you know, raising an eyebrow and saying, hey, what is he doing? I thought, didn't the Koch brothers do something similar to this? So Koch that Bro- Al Gore Bush election, didn't they like? Well, that's, yeah, well, that's a whole nother podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bush v. Gore is a whole nother thing. Um, so, you know, an, an organization called APM, they did an analysis of the counties uh, in some of those states I mentioned that received the grants to find out, well, did the counties that received the grants have higher turnout than counties that did not? And uh, according to their analysis, it was pretty much even. Now, you remember 2020 election was the highest voter turnout, period. So, I, that was a, a very contentious election, and Americans truly wanted to make sure their voices were heard. Um, and so this bill, the House Bill uh, 1464, kill, effectively kills you know nonprofit money coming in. Although, who knows? Maybe um, organizations will still do it, but at the end of the day, it makes it a partisan thing rather than a nonpartisan thing because the state elections board was changed under Senate Bill 202, and it has become more partisan than, you know, what it should be. Um, Another thing this bill does, it gives the Georgia Bureau of Investigations the power to investigate elections. So the head of the GBI is appointed by the governor, right? So technically, they are not accountable to the public because that's the governor's pick, which means it's a partisan pick. Um, no, I think the GBI is generally, you know, I would say they're probably perceived as nonpartisan, but inserting them into elections makes it, makes them even have to toe the line even more, right? It just makes it more difficult for them. 
Um, so right now, investigations are generally handled by the Secretary of State, who will then enlist the GBI to help as needed, right? But this would uh, change that. Now, Douglas County, which is by no means a Democratic county, uh, the head of the elections office there uh, had this to say about the GBI uh, being more directly involved in uh, investigations. Uh, so he says, and I quote, um, poll workers have told me that they have moved away from the election space because they feel like these actions are going to come against them. It's going to have a chilling effect on voters participating in the process because in most cases, the elections issues that the Secretary of State has found have been administrative issues. They are issues that the current mechanism can actually deal with. Uh, and then he says, you know, basically the Secretary of State's office has a more than capable elections division and we're completely bypassing that and bringing in the, GP, the GBI. And from everything I've been told, this is the GBI doesn't want to do this. They're just being uh, what we call voluntold, where you are being forced uh, to do this. And you have to remember also the GBI has a ton of other things on their plates. Uh, another bill that's of interest, House Bill 1406. Well, I do want to say something, though. I think the Douglas County, I think he's very right, <clears throat> only because... It when when I know when black especially black folks when they hear GBI, they think of you know teacher cheating scandal and how they came for everybody. Right, like it wasn't just the principals. So I'm volunteering at the poll. Some fraudulent stuff happens. I know I don't know. I don't know, but I'm caught up in the investigation. Right. Yeah, I, that's a scary move right there. But it's yeah. done. So this 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 bill is done. It just uh, it, it's passed at least one of the chambers. It's more than likely going to pass mm. both chambers. Yeah. Damn. So next is House Bill 1406. Uh, one of the roles of local government is something called land use zoning. I, you know, unless you're in this space, it sounds terribly boring um, and completely wonky, but zoning impacts your quality of life. It impacts how you live, where you live, what types of houses are on your street, uh, what amenities you have nearby, all those types of things. So House Bill 1406 is a Republican-backed bill and it would create a few more obstacles uh, by mandating additional hearings and public input opportunities before a city or county can rezone single-family properties. And it seems like this is really aimed at uh, cities and counties, I'm guessing, in North Fulton, maybe parts of Cobb and Gwinnett, that are having a debate about how many apartments and townhomes that they're going to allow to be built. Uh, so a single-family property could be rezoned to allow for something called an accessory dwelling unit or an ADU. Uh, what is an ADU? That's basically like a tiny house in your backyard. Not quite, maybe a little bit bigger than a she shed, right? So just, I think, a tiny house in your backyard. Now, Like the trailer size? How they, how they, they redo the trailers? Like yeah, the, uh, yeah, like probably, you know, between container, four like the to... the containers, that's what yeah, I Yeah, probably between like four to a thousand square feet. 400 to a thousand square feet. Um, so an ADU, you can think of it as like an in-law suite, 
Um, it could be, you know, a lot of folks think ADUs are a way to address the affordable housing uh, crisis that we're facing as a region and state. Uh, but people can also, you know, build an ADU and use it for Airbnb, right? Or use it as um, an actual sort of apartment that might be great for a college student or for someone in grad school or, you know, someone just kind of just starting out. Uh, but they can also be very expensive. It really just depends on what the person is trying to build. Uh, and locally in Atlanta, there's a group called Neighbors for More Neighbors. They've come out really hard against this bill. Uh, and here's a quote from one of the members. And he says, Georgia is in an insane housing crisis. We are not building housing. We're not building nearly the housing we need in any way, shape or form. And this bill makes it even harder for cities to meet this need, and he finds it mind-boggling. Just and by the way, if you're if you're ever in support of or opposed to a bill, just look up that bill number, find the sponsors of that bill, and you can email or call their office. And then you can also email or call your state rep or your state senator. And then if you want to take it another step further, you can reach out to your county's entire legislative delegation. So that would be all the Republicans and all the senators in the House and Senate that represent your county. All right, one more bill that we'll highlight. This is House Bill 304. Um, so I mentioned maybe last week or week before last that Governor Brian Kemp wanted to suspend the gas tax. So uh, the bill to make that law, that's House Bill 304, passed unanimously last week out of the State House and State Senate. That means it had bipartisan support. So Democrats and Republicans backed this bill. So the governor signed it into law Friday, uh, and now Georgia's uh, Georgia drivers, uh, you no longer have to pay the 29.1 cents a gallon, uh, which is the motor fuel tax at least until May 31st. Why May 31st? Because the primary is May 24th. How smart. And also, that's after that station uses that gas that they have now. Because I asked them, I was like, hey man, this gas still for something. For 29, I was going to be cheaper. They said the way the tax works, you get rid of that gas. And when they go to buy more, they're not taxed, so we're not taxed. So. And how long is it going to take for them to get rid of the current gas? I don't know, but I do know in Beaufort, Georgia, it happened already. My gas was three eighty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> this is when we should have a Tesla commercial right about here. <laughs> three eighty-seven gas. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah. All right. Uh, one more thing happening in Georgia politics. Uh, when you go vote in November, and if you listen to this podcast, I know you are going to go vote in November, uh, you will be able to determine if our state reps and state senators will get a raise. Now, Georgia lawmakers only make $17,342 a year. That salary has been in place since the 90s. Wild. So, now, during the session, they get what's called a per diem of $173 a day. They also get mileage reimbursements because you got to remember folks are coming from all over the entire state uh, to the capital downtown. 
And then, of course, the state's health care plan is good. But even still, $17,342 a day is not a lot of money. In fact, they have one of the lowest salaries of any state legislator in the country. So it should not be a surprise that if you look up who makes up the House and Senate, most of these folks have high paying jobs, right, which is why that low uh, salary for this job is not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. Uh, so there will be a question on your November ballot uh, and what the what they have proposed, which I actually think is kind of smart, is they are going to set the salary to two thirds of Georgia's median household income. And the state's current medium household income is 58000 a year. So if the ballot question is approved in November, that means starting next year, lawmakers will be paid about $35,000 a year. And for comparison, the Atlanta City Council, which meets year-round, they make about $70,000 a year. So not a bad idea to be in elected office. All right, one more story before we go into kind of the national news. Okay, so you guys remember the fireworks from maybe a month or two ago about um, MARTA saying that it was going to turn $300 million proposed for the Campbellton Road uh, project for light rail transit into $180 million for a bus rapid transit project. A lot, a lot of folks freaked out. Uh, it was a bit of a mess. So at the crux of this issue, people want the entire $300 million to stay in the Campbellton Road community, which I get. I can understand that. Uh, so MARTA is working on a plan, they said, for that exactly to happen. So they said they're going to build what they are calling a gold standard bus rapid transit line and a new transit hub at Greenbrier Mall. Uh, a couple things about this, and I'm just going to share a story. I think in Metro Atlanta, we have a serious bus bias. And I'm going to give you an example. So last week, I was at Pond City Market for a meeting. Uh, I walked to PCM because it's in my neighborhood. And my next meeting was in downtown Decatur, right? So already, I'm already on the east side of town. Now, there's a MARTA bus stop directly in front of PCM. Literally, you go down the stairs and the bus stop is right there. Uh, that bus would have taken me to a rail station that's only two stops away from downtown Decatur, which was my destination. Very easy trip, right? Uh, so the person I was uh, meeting uh, at Pond City Market as we were preparing to leave, they said, oh, where are you headed next? And I say, downtown Decatur. And they're like, oh, where, why are you going? They saw that I was about to walk towards the front of PCM. They're like, where are you, why are you going that way? I said, because I'm taking the bus, and the bus stop is right there. And they looked at me like I said I was about to freaking sprint to downtown Decatur or something. <laughs> they're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking the bus? I was like, because it's convenient. It's right there. And they were just mortified that I would ever consider taking the bus in the middle of the day, mind you. This is like 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so it was just remarkable. The bus was clean. The bus came when it was supposed to come. It's, it's every good experience that you want. While I was on the bus, I caught up on emails. I listened to music. Right? It was just easy, just chilled out. Um, 
but it just remind. this was a person from New York, mind you. So it just was a reminder that we have a real serious bias against buses uh, in this region. And the last thing I'll say about this, um, we've never had bus rapid transit in the real form in Atlanta. So I think it's really hard for people to understand what is bus rapid transit? Why is it actually something that we should have here? Um, and it's not, you know, a poor version of the train or anything like that. Uh, so I think we've got to really do a lot of education around that. Um, you know, it's basically like an HOV lane, but for the street, not the highway, right? And I think once we have real BRT and folks see that BRT bus in the in the bus lane, skipping ever, over everyone who's in traffic, maybe we'll start to see a shift and a change happen. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the key word. I was listening to you say it in rapid. Rapid, that's, that's right. The that's the key, key word, word rapid. It's not fast, you know, and, um, you know, as I always say on the pod, equity, right? Yeah. Because, yes, I ride the bus too, but if you ride the bus a couple more stops down from downtown Decatur, down Memorial, those buses on that that route aren't always the cleanest, don't always smell the best, and it's, it's, it's like that outside of the city. So as soon as you leave outside of the train station, basically, all of those outside buses that's where people get those perceptions from because it's like, you know, always not the cleanest or, you know, the light doesn't work or something. And, you know, Marta, they were doing good for a minute. They were real good on customer service. I felt like they were addressing everything. And I felt like, you know, COVID pandemic. The pandemic has been really, really hard. Yeah. It's been hard. I think it's been hard for them to get bus operators, it's been hard for them to kind of keep the routes going as frequently because they don't have enough staff. And the other thing is homelessness in Atlanta, right? So when we shut down homeless shelters and we don't have enough housing for the homeless population, what they do is they'll ride the bus or they'll ride the train um, and because there's nowhere else for them to go. And as a region, we have to tackle that problem and help people find supportive housing and kind of get them back uh, on their feet. Yeah, and real support because the other reason why they're on the bus is because I know because I used to work for a nonprofit, they're quick to give them a twenty dollar Marta pass after they close down the facility, right? To you know, hey, get to where you're yeah. going, but where are they really going? So I feel like the city also, you know, they they want them to find housing and stay off of Marta, but then you gave them a Marta pass to go where? To so, a house? Yeah. So Marta's <laughs> always paying for the sins of the region, basically. Yeah. 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 So like COVID-19 just reset everything. Yeah. And, and they still haven't brought some routes back. No, I know. Yeah. yeah There's so a lot that haven't been brought back. Yeah. So we have to figure that out. And then uh, I guess we'll probably be talking about this maybe in... Well, we're in March right now, so maybe in April, May, uh, MARTA completely redoing the entire bus network system. It's called the bus network redesign. So that will be something we'll want to talk about Ooh, soon. Okay. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right, let's switch over to national news. Uh, big thing. I've talked about this a couple times on the pod. 
uh, progressives are continuing to beat the drum uh, that the White House has got to do more about student loan debt. Um, the education secretary under President Obama, he said in an op-ed that Biden, President Biden, should cancel $50,000 of student loan debt. <laughs> now, remember Biden on the campaigns, on the campaign trail, he campaigned to cancel $10,000 of student loan debt, although that has not yet happened. Uh, but the education secretary under Obama, he said... 50,000, and that would provide uh, complete relief for 36 million Americans. That is a lot, a lot of people. Now, while they're trying to figure out how to address student loan debt, they need to also figure out how to cut the cost of tuition. Uh, the Pell Grant in particular, which was specifically supposed to be uh, for students from low-income households, uh, when it was first created, the Pell Grant accounted for 80% of the cost of college. Today, it covers less than a third of college tuition. That is a problem. Um, so there's a guy named Max Lubin. He is the co-founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Rise, uh, Rise Inc., and they have been advocating to eliminate college tuition completely, which is, I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's interesting. Uh, he said, the White House does not seem to get that their base isn't just old white people who want to hear fund the police. It's young and racially diverse, and we need student debt ca cancellation and climate action for young people to have a fair shot. Now, I want to remind you guys that voters under 30, uh, under age 30, who've actually voted, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported Biden over Trump by a 60 to 36 margin. Now, Democrats are having a lot of questions and, and conversation about how to get young folks back to the polls, both for the midterms this year and again for 2024. You're not going to get them if you're not doing anything for them. So I hope they recognize that. Well, you got them off of the promises to come right. through. Right. Come through, Biden. All right. Next up, you might have heard of this one, too. Um, I think last week's episode I mentioned, or the one before, Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. So there's been a lot of pressure uh, since that uh, for Disney to come out against the bill. And we know how much money Disney does in Florida, right? Disney employs 80,000 people in Florida. That is a lot of freaking people. That's in fact, almost double, if I'm not mistaken, of what Delta employs here in Georgia. So the CEO of Disney, who actually is fairly new, uh, I think he came on in like 2020. He replaced um, Bob Iger, who was like the most beloved CEO ever of Disney. So uh, Bob Chapek, he says, you know, he was getting pressure from employees to take a stand. He wrote this internal memo saying that, you know, LGBT employees, I stand with you. I, I believe in you. Uh, but he didn't actually show it, right? So there was pressure for Disney to pause all campaign contributions to legislators who supported the bill. Um, and if you looked at the financial disclosures Disney had previously given to all of the sponsors of that bill, 
Um, so in the first internal memo, the CEO says, hey, listen, and here I quote, I don't want anyone to mistake a lack of statement for a lack of support. We all share the same goal of a more tolerant, respectful world. Where we may differ is in the tactics to get there. And so the pressure continued to mount and he issued another memo and he said, okay, okay. It is clear that this is not just an issue about a bill in Florida, but instead yet another challenge to basic human rights. You needed me to be a stronger ally in the fight for equal, fight for equal rights and I let you down. I'm sorry. So he apologized, right? And as a mea culpa, he had Disney donate $5 million to the human rights campaign. But they said, nah, we don't want your money. They rejected it. Um, and then, because they said, this is, you're just doing this to save face, right? Uh, and then uh, the CEO also instructed Disney's political team to completely suspend all political, all political donations in Florida. So it didn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, they were just going to stop all political donations. Um, now, over the last two years, Disney gave DeSantis $50,000. And then you might remember DeSantis is in the middle of an election. So we'll see kind of what happens with this. No surprise, D Governor DeSantis says, oh, okay, Disney, you're trying to be a woke company, um, which, you know, we keep, we keep having this debate in, the, in this country about corporate activism and what is the role of companies in supporting or even um, opposing outright controversial legislation. Right in Georgia, we saw this when the film industry and other major companies came out hard against LGBT legislation. And then on the flip side, we saw near silence on bills to restrict abortions and on Senate Bill 202, which did a number of things to make it a little bit harder to vote, including restrictions on ballot boxes. So I don't know what corporate America is going to end up doing, uh, but I think it's going to be very hard for them to stay out of these kinds of issues uh, because not only do their employees expect them to take a stand, but the public and their customers also expect them to take a stand. All right, let's do an update on Starbucks unionization efforts, uh, the latest. So the Starbucks Workers United, they have filed charges with the National Labor Relations Board. They are alleging that Starbucks has been cutting workers' hours nationwide in a deliberate attempt to bust the union effort. Uh, so basically what they are saying is that Starbucks has drastically cut the hours of pro-union leaders and sympathizers. In a survey of its members, the Starbucks Workers United said that workers have lost anywhere between 2 and 15 hours from their schedules each week. Now, to get benefits at Starbucks, you have to work at least 20 hours a week. So, if it's true that they're doing this, um, this is saving, at least in the short term, it's saving Starbucks uh, money and it's sending a clear signal that supporting unions will cost you your job and your benefits. So the National Labor uh, Review Board is going to be investigating the complaint and seeing what's what. 
and if they find Starbucks guilty, then I'm sure there will be some type of fines or something that they will have to uh, pay or address if that is indeed the case. And maybe they'll even be forced to pay back, uh, pay, pay back pay for anyone that they've cut hours on. Um, so baristas aren't the only ones who are fed up. Teachers are mad too. Uh, teachers in Minneapolis have gone on strike. Uh, they are pushing for higher wages, smaller classes, and more mental health support for students. So that all sounds, you know, pretty reasonable. Uh, but the Minneapolis school district is facing a $21 million budget shortfall, which is a lot of money. Uh, but the state has a budget surplus. Uh, the governor, in fact, has proposed a 2% increase in education funding per student, but uh, he can't seem to get Republicans to go along with the plan, so it probably won't pass. So one of the teachers who's been with the Minneapolis School District for 29 years said she also works 30 hours a week at Target just to be able to pay her bills. Dang. Crazy. Next year's budget uh, for Minneapolis calls for 250 teachers' positions to be eliminated. So that means the teachers who stay are going to have to do more with less. Uh, it's Tuesday, so we're now heading into the third week of the strike. Uh, the last time these teachers went on strike in Minneapolis, it was in the 70s, and it actually lasted three weeks. Now, I don't know uh, if we're going to, you know, I, I, there's teacher burnout happening, obviously, in Minneapolis, but across the country. And I don't know if we really understand the impact of this, because teachers are quitting left and right. right? I think about college students uh, who are thinking or who are already planning to go into education, um, or high school students who are planning to go into college and major in education. I hope they see what's happening and it doesn't make them reconsider uh, becoming a teacher. So Pew Research, by the way, uh, they did a poll and they found that the top three reasons that folks are quitting their jobs, either the pay was too low, there were no opportunities for advancement, or folks felt disrespected at work. Those are the top three reasons. And I think it's probably fair to say the teachers are facing at least two of those three, if not all three. Okay, guess what's been going on this week? Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, is doing the confirmation hearings for Kentaji Brown Jackson. She, if um, confirmed, will be the first black female on the Supreme Court. Uh, at least one Republican senator, Josh Hawley, went to Twitter uh, over the weekend and said that uh, she lets child porn offenders off the hook. And he even mentioned it uh, in his testimony uh, during the hearings. Uh, he basically said, what he said was out of, out of context. She was reading uh, from witness testimony and he was saying that, oh, those were her words, but that actually isn't the case. Uh, I think it's going to be hard for Republicans to find a legitimate reason to vote no against Kentaji. Other than politics, of course, um, unfortunately, Supreme Court picks uh, year over year over year have become more and more partisan, and that is not the original intent. Uh, take a listen to a snippet from Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Graham from South Carolina, 
this was uh, in Monday's hearing, he was quite animated and he was very upset that Michelle Childs, another black woman who Biden was considering, who's actually from South Carolina, he was really upset that she wasn't selected. Uh, but take a listen to what Lindsey Graham said in his remarks. that conclusion maybe there's no explanation you can give us but let we'll, we'll talk about that now when we say this is not Kavanaugh what do we mean it means that Democratic senators are not gonna have their windows busted by groups that's what it means it means that no Republican senator is going to unleash on you an attack about your character when the hearing is virtually over None of us, I hope, have been sitting on information about you as a person for weeks or months. You come into our offices and we never share it with you to allow you to give your side of the story. We wait to the very last minute when the hearing's about to be gavel concluded and say, oh, by the way, I've got this letter. And so happened that every media outlet in the country had the letter too. So the next morning, there were headlines all over the country, really, accusing Judge Kavanaugh of being basically Bill Cosby. None of us are going to do that to you. And if any of us does that to you, all hell will break out, and it should. The media will uh, be your biggest cheerleader. They're in your camp. They have every right to pick who they want to pick. They won't be this constant attack on you like Judge Kavanaugh and other conservative judicial appointments. They won't be any questioning of where you go to church, what kind of groups you're in in church, how you decide to raise your kids, what you believe in, how you believe in God. Nobody's gonna do that to you. And that's a good thing. So you're the beneficiary of a lot. You're the beneficiary of Republican nominees having their life turned upside down. And it didn't work. So I am hoping that we can have a hearing that's respectful, that's informative, that's challenging. And President Biden has every right to pick who he'd like to pick. That comes with winning the White House. And I've been very inclined to support the picks of people that I would not have chosen. But this is a new game for the Supreme Court. And this game is particularly disturbing to me because there's been a wholesale effort of the left to take down a nominee for my state. And I uh, don't like it very much. And if that's the way the game's gonna be played, then I'll have a response and I don't expect it to be reward that way of playing the game. Justice Child, Judge Childs would have gotten 60 plus votes. There have been people in my caucus that would have voted for her, even though we knew she would be a reliable liberal vote, because I and Senator Scott would have stepped up. Now we're picked, now we're facing a choice sponsored by the most radical elements of the Democratic Party when it comes to how to be a judge. They have the most radical view of what a judge should do, and you were their choice. Right there. <laughs> it was very spicy. Dang. So, and it's like, 
you know, oh, we're not going to besmirch your character. We're not going to do all these, but we're going to pitch you against this other black woman and diminish your qualifications and who you are. It's just, you know, it's just unfortunate that the Supreme Court is so partisan. It's supposed to be the one branch of government, the one that can rise above and not have to be muddied by all of this partisan crap. But it is just as bad as the House and Senate sometimes. Yeah, I think she's a little overqualified. Like, I saw a meme that had like all the yellow, the, I mean, all the yeah, check marks. Like, yeah, not I just saw school, that. But Ivy League and clerking right. and Judge Shapiro and right. Apprentice Shapiro and you know federal judge. Like every step you can take to get there. More and qualified than the last Supreme Court pick. Yeah. Damn. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. But I, you know, I think barring a miracle or, or barring something strange happening, I should say, she should be um, selected. The question is, is it going to be a pure party vote? And then what? what's our favorite villain, Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Cinema going to do? And you know what I wanted to ask you too. Um, but so, so what happens? So this this pick is going through, right? And I heard Clarence Thomas is hospitalized, right? Flu like symptoms. Yeah, but so. they said he's going to be out in like a couple days. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so I was going to say like that means there would be another appointment, right? If he right, if he were to pass, to check out. yes, mm-hmm. yeah, there would be another appointment. Mm, okay. Yeah, unless Mitch McConnell, you know tries to do something and block it but right but democrats have control of the senate and the house which is again a reminder of why every election matters until january until january i mean midterm elections this year right right that's what i'm saying yeah so democrats have the house for now for now they have the house until january i got you yeah well it depends on how people vote but more than likely they will lose the house um Okay, one last thing uh, before we do our party pooper and party starter. Um, I haven't talked about Ukraine over the past couple episodes just because things are just, it's an interesting shift in kind of what's going on. And, you know, if you really want to follow what's happening, I feel like The Daily, which is a New York Times podcast, is doing some good uh, stuff. And then you've got, um, I can maybe next episode give some suggestions for more left-leaning podcasts and more right-leaning podcasts on the Ukraine crisis. Uh, But I will share um, some Pew Research data on how Americans are feeling about the crisis. Uh, So three key points here. Uh, First up, Republican and Democratic voters are polling in the 70s and 80s on the question of if working with our allies around the world has been the right approach for the U.S. and for Biden. So that's pretty high marks. Uh, A second one, 63% of Americans strongly favor strict sanctions against Russia. And then the last point here, 62% say they would oppose the U.S. taking military action, even if it risks a nuclear conflict with Russia. So that says to me that Americans feel like we're doing probably what we should be doing, but they don't want to see us take military action. They don't want to see us putting troops on the ground, you know, basically kind of help as much as you can, 
but don't bring the military into the situation. Um, you know, let's just, I gotta say this whole Ukraine thing is just making me think about what in the world it was like during the first world war, right? And kind of where our heads were as a country then, and what the, what the national debate was about America's role and involvement and what we wanted to do. You know, I remember going to the Holocaust Museum in DC and I remember one of the things they talked about at the museum was how Americans didn't want to bring Jews in, right? And how like they, at one point, like they were literally, there was a boat, a ship that they was trying, they were trying to dock on the shore. And America was like, nah, you can't, you can't dock here. Um, so it, it's like, granted, we haven't said no, I don't think to Ukrainian refugees, but it just makes you think of like, what, like what's happening and are we doing what's morally right versus what is militarily or politically right? Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah, because I, I think it was in the same sense too. Um, but I also know, you know, during those times too, I feel like America was like a very America first. Right. Anyway, so they it were. was harder to get them to do that. Now, we want to get back to America first, but it's not happening. So, of course. Well, tr- yeah, Trump was America first. Yeah, yeah, but it didn't last long enough. And, you know, we we read the polls all the time on the show, and it, it clearly shows a disconnect between the people, the people who are voting, and then the people who are getting voted in. Right. It's like the people at the bottom are still practical. Like, right. we talked about student loan debt, 50000 a piece. You got it because you just gave Ukraine, like, $6 billion. So, I mean, with a B. With a B. With a B. No long discussion. Right. Yeah, that was in a matter of days. You know, um, their schools opening up their dorms for up to 50 to 100 families. We talk about homelessness in America all the time. So I think that, you know, unfortunately, those sentiments come because. We're not like, taking care of not, home. We're not taking care of home. Yeah. You know, and, you know. I thought we were still in the middle of a pandemic. So during no, that co- time, COVID's we, been over. we weren't letting people come over. <laughs> right. And now we're about to bring over just all these people. And I just, I heard on uh, Fox News, uh, Fox 5. News. <laughs> the clarification, <laughs> yeah, Fox, Fox, five, Fox 5, local TV. Local TV. <laughs> and uh, they were interviewing a doctor and they were talking about the uh, the pandemic and, you know, right. ebbs and flows. But There's he a also, new variant. Exactly. He also mentioned there's a new variant, and he also mentioned that Ukraine was one of the was one of the countries, countries to yeah. not be vaccinated. But we're about to just bring all these people. Let know. me go get my booster. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> all right. Uh, now let's go to the favorite part of the show: party poopers and party starters. <laughs> All right, this week's party poopers, this will not come as a surprise, uh, but this was prompted by uh, a particular senator from Iowa saying he was running for re-election. So my party pooper of the week is a group of people. It's the octogenarians. Those are folks who were in their 80s. I know that's an SAT word. Uh, Octogenarians who were all seeking re-election to Congress this year. I'm going to read you... In today's age, where these folks are, but by the time they get reelected, add one more year. 
Nancy Pelosi, 81, a representative from California. She's a Democrat. Jim Clyburn, 81, representative from South Carolina. He's a Democrat. Steny Hoyer, 82, representative from Maryland, Democrat. And then Chuck Grassley, 88, from Iowa, Senator Republican. Now, we have age minimums for the House and the Senate. My question is, do we need to have age maximums? All right, and to our party starters. This is an odd party starter, uh, but it's a legit one. Uh, so the party starter for this week, it's also a group. It goes to Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, the consumer credit agencies. <coughs> Why am I giving them love? It's legit. Uh, because they are changing how medical debt impacts your credit score. So here from the Wall Street Journal, these three rating agencies are going to remove medical debt that was paid after it was sent to collections. Uh, these debts can stick around on your consumer credit report for up to seven years, uh, even after you fully paid it off. So new unpaid medical debt won't get added uh, to credit reports for a full year after being sent to collections. In America, there are about $88 billion worth of medical bills impacting the credit scores of 43 million Americans. That is a massive thing. And so for that, I'm gonna give them some love as our party starters. That is today's show. As always, thank you, thank you so much for rocking with us. We appreciate it. By the way, if you're ever wondering who is that guy I'm talking to, that is Keith, who stays behind the camera. Uh, you won't see him, but he's always there checking the sound, telling me to do this or do that while we're recording. So just wanted you to know, because I've had some questions about who is that dude? It's Keith. All right, y'all take care. Have a fantastic week, and we will see you next time. Deuces.